So professionals, please be humble and allow people to, to teach you how to treat them and not go by, okay, this is addiction. This is what happened. A, B, C, D. Let's just put this name on there. That ain't how I go. Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, Houston's Sober High School. Twice monthly, we join recovery advocates, industry-leading experts, and medical professionals to discuss topics about adolescent addiction, the effects of social media, and what it means to be a teenager in this day and age. The goal of this podcast is to create a space where professionals can come together, share insights gleaned from working with teens and their families. We also strive to be a resource for parents with teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. We believe that although it may be hard to see it now, something different is possible. This is a way through. Hi, everyone. My name is Andrew. I'm the admissions specialist at Archway Academy. Hi, everybody. I'm Jamie Edwards, and I'm the Director of Community Relations for Archway Academy. And today we are here with Latif Glivens, who is the lead recovery coach at the Palmer Drug Abuse Program. He's also been with a few other programs in the city like Senecor, Unlimited Visions. And in addition to his professional experience with various organizations in Houston, he's also active in the community. And he's someone who's passionate about recovery and passionate about service. And we know that the Palmer Drug Abuse Program is lucky to have Latif. We're lucky to have him here today. So thank you for for being on with us, Latif. My pleasure. I appreciate y'all having me. One of the things that your role over at PADAP entails is family. So you do both family counseling with the student and their parents. You also do family groups. And I know based on what I've seen and conversations I've had with you and feedback that we hear from parents is that your interaction with them is super meaningful. It's something you take pride in, that you try to make it a great experience for the parents. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you think are important to convey to parents or to do with parents during family sessions and during parent groups? What are some of the important topics you like to touch on and and things you want parents to know? Uh, one of the main things I like to talk about is uh, control. A lot of parents feel like they have control over a lot of situations when they actually don't. Evidence shows because if you really did have control, if you think about it, if I was a parent, then my kid's life would be like this, 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 and this. And it never goes like that, you know. So I try to try to get them to surrender, basically like the same way as we do with the kids, get them to surrender and allow the, the kid to go through the process the way that they need to go through it and whatever that looks like, you know, and sometimes whatever that looks like may hurt, you know, and, and part of being hurt is also the experience of learning what to what to not do and what to do. So if I can sit back and allow the process to take place and also take care of myself during the process and get the support that I need, then most of the time, the some of the things that goes on will be avoided or also or we'll have a coping skill or a resource or something that we're able to contact with. It's interesting that you say that because we interviewed Kristen with Newport Health, and she was talking about the importance of parents having their own support system and having people with the same lived experience where you can be open and honest and talk about what's going on without a lot of the shame that, that can go with parenting someone, an adolescent who's struggling. Not shame about the child's struggles, but shame that somehow 
you're defective as a parent and therefore your child is suffering. And so what I'd really like to hear from you is your own personal experience. I know, you know, we we know one another from being here in the same building and you've shared with me starting at around age 12, there started to be some things that were happening in your own life. So one of the reasons I'm excited to have you is that you can share your perspective as a professional and an adult today, but you also know what it is to be that teen who is struggling. Yeah. Around 12 years old or so, you know, I had the the mom was the addict. My dad was a function addict, functioning addict and my, my brother was a drug dealer. So uh, those things were part of my life on an everyday basis. And I, I, I started acting out real bad, probably around the seventh grade. And, you know, at that time I was labeled as a, uh, emotionally disturbed or however you want to call it. And I acted out in, in aggression. And at that time, I didn't understand what 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 the uh, root of the problem was. So I figured out, you know, one weekend I'm going to this area where there's this drug infested. My mom's using never there. But this is the relationship that I wanted and by not getting that relationship or having that relationship. I started acting out and, and it carried on to when I go back to my dad's house. The, the behavior continued. So in, in in my household, you know, therapy and all that stuff right there was uh, non-existent and it wasn't believed in and stuff like that. So I had to wait till I got, what, 44 to, to start experimenting with uh, therapy and counseling and medication management and, and uh, also the program of uh, anonymous programs, Narcotics Anonymous AA. And all that stuff. So, but I did come from the the gang life, the uh, prison system, the street stuff. I did all that stuff down in prison, man. I I served 19 years for a crime that I didn't commit. But I did. I was telling you guys, I did commit crimes that I that I didn't get caught for. So that's why I gained the acceptance. And that's a big key of uh, being able to recover from anything is acceptance. And I had to be honest with myself and and say, hey, man, something got to change. You know. So uh, my first piece of acceptance was accepting that I was down there, not not because I didn't do the crime, but because I wasn't living right. You know, so I had to I had to accept that I wasn't living right. And and also I came to the conclusion that there was a possibility that I wouldn't even made it this far if I wouldn't have went to prison. So my recovery journey started there on the mental on the mental aspect if y'all want me to go into after I got out of prison, then um, we can talk about I, I went in prison in 1993. I was 20 years old and I came home in 2012 at 39 years old. Of course, the barriers were set already. You know, when I first got down there with the uh, acceptance, I started accepting. But then when you get out, when I got when I got out, it's a, a whole nother barrier that started. And that's like looking at people my age with careers and and all this stuff and and I'm starting off like I'm 17 18 years old you know and uh, of course once you leave society at 20 years old and I come home at 39 my mindset is still at 20 years old so I'm out here um fighting to 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 get into the to job force and to be successful and you know I went through the numerous letdowns and the turnbacks and no you you're not qualified or your background this your background that but through the the initial acceptance that I gained from my situation I was able to be resilient and, and continue my journey because I did want a better way of life so I was I you know I kept on pushing kept doing whatever it is I needed to do 
to uh, get whatever job that I can take. At that time, I was working construction, but that didn't last that long. So I'm gonna go into. Uh, of course, I was. I I, I came became susceptible to addictions. I fell into addiction at age 41. So two years after I got out of prison. So the first uh, layoff that I had from construction, 2014, I got laid off. And that's when my addiction started, you know, boredom, too much time on my hands, a lot of money in the bank, in the bank account. But another thing was um, the things that a lot of guys go through when they first come home, I didn't have to go through them at first until I got laid off. When I got laid off, that's when the battle really began because I didn't I, I was off when I came home. I was instantly successful. So now I have no job. I have time on my hands, money in my bank account. And the people, the places and the things that I was doing were were uh, part of the reason why I uh, started using. And also the lack of relationship with my daughter. Mind you, she was three months old when I got incarcerated and 19 years old when I came home. So I started using and, and drinking a lot and, and doing other substances. At that time, everything that I built, I was taking a chance of losing everything. So I went to treatment. So far, based on what you've shared, there is a few topics that I think we definitely, definitely want to touch on more. And so one of the initial things you had discussed was kind of after we discussed your work with the parents at PADAP. And again, there's a lot we want to talk about. You talked about your work with the parents at PADAP. You talked about how your mother was a dysfunctional person with a substance use disorder, but how your father was functioning. And so it sounds like he was present in a lot of ways that in ways that your mom wasn't. And I know off camera, we, we've, we've talked about this as well. I'm curious, what were some of the things throughout your childhood and even adult life? What were some of the things your dad did that were impactful what were ways that he showed up that in some ways may have been small from an outside perspective, but that meant a lot to you? Well, my dad was always present. He was always there, maybe work late or whatever, but he always took the time to uh, sit sit me down and, and instill those morals and values and, and tell me uh, he was a talker. And he also allowed me to make mistakes. He allowed me to make mistakes, but he wouldn't let me fall too far. And the main thing that he did, man, is he taught me responsibility and take responsibility for my actions. You know, a lot of stuff that they tell us when we're young, we don't grasp it until later on in life. One of the things that I saw my dad do all the time was come home, eat dinner with the family, provide for the family and also spend time with me. You know, I, I saw this all the time. I didn't appreciate it and I wasn't grateful for it at the time, but Till this day, the same behavior, the same consistency is present to this day. That's how I try to show up, too. And I also try to get the uh, those same morals and values in the same way that he uh, parented me back then. Some of those things can can go into what parents go through today. And also he was part of my support system. He was my support system throughout my incarceration and my addiction. So. And he didn't pressure me to uh, do do this, do that. He allowed me to to be able to say, hey, pops, there's nothing that you can do that's going to make me stop. So just let me have this time. And when I'm ready, I'll come home. So that's he allowed me that's that safe space and that non-judgmental reaction. Today, I'm still I'm still dealing with him and he's still there. Wow. Yeah. 
So two things I want to ask you, Latif. One, it, well, I don't want to ask you this. I want to tell you, congratulations, because you're a newlywed. Yeah. And you have your own <laughs> wife and family and, and kids now for you to be able to use all of that that your dad taught you with your own family. And congratulations to that. And then also, can you share, it's really hard. The landscape for parents and the child that's struggling is just hard. Addiction, self-harm, high-risk behavior, all of that is difficult on everyone. Can you help parents maybe with some wisdom being the adolescent who struggled and, and then now being a parent yourself in how is it that we can love our kids well and not over-function so they can under-function, yeah. right? What is that balance? What is it that you encourage the parents at PADAP to do? Well, first, I want, I want everybody to understand that love is, is not always um, doing for somebody. You know, I can love somebody and support them without action. I can support them through what what they're going through, however that looks, you know, if I'm if I got a kid going through addiction, of course, it's hard for a parent to sit there and watch their kid suffer. But it's it's also uh, a parent's duty to allow somebody that's professional and that that's uh, qualified to to uh, guide their kid through those processes and, and step back and let the process take its place. So there's numerous uh, resources out there, and it's the parents' duty also when you're dealing with adolescents to find those resources. Let the let the people that that work at those places take the control, take the reins, and and because the kid, the kid, they're gonna get sober, they're gonna get clean when they get ready, regardless. But you know, after the five stages of change, the pre-contemplation. Once you get past that. They can't go. Once you get the contemplation, you can't go b- backwards. So they're already on with the knowledge that they need to have. Now they have to make a conscious decision to surrender and then practice the program. That also goes for the parent, though. So when you got the parent that's uh, enabling. Now, love, sometimes love looks like enabling to some people. But it's it's actually, y'all heard of the term loving somebody to death. And, you know, we can we can supply the kid with whatever they whatever they ask for. That's not going to change the addiction. That's not going to change the behavior that can also that can contribute to the behavior and the addiction getting worse, though. You know what I mean? So we have to find a healthy balance in between. And also the parents, I would I would suggest that parents find their own support system, their own support groups. And if whatever they're going, if it's not hitting in the heart, and in the mind, then it's, it's it's other places that they can go. Also, find that one that fits you and your family, and, and uh, stick with it, no matter what your kids doing. Because you have to have the knowledge, and you have to have the the wisdom, the understanding, the surrender, the the dedication. You have to have all the things that the kid need to go into the treatments and all that stuff right there. The parents got to have the same thing on their side, but it has to be their stuff, not our stuff. So after you get your stuff and the kid gets their stuff, now we can start working on our stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Another thing you had talked about earlier when kind of giving us a sort of timeline was your childhood and how you were in some ways susceptible to certain dangers like mental health and certain lifestyles. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and a little bit about some of the things that impacted you both positively and negatively. I know we talked about your father being a positive influence, but um, what were some of the things that impacted you that that put you on a certain path that led you to 
uh, lifestyle that entailed um, certain criminal activity or certain things that weren't super beneficial to your progression as a young man? So, you know, we teach the kids about people, places and things. So unfortunately, you know, most of my young years and my teenage years, all the way up to my second incarceration, second incarceration, most of my my influences was negative. So but there were positive influences like school and stuff like that. But at that time, I was already uh, contaminated with with all the stuff that was inside of my neighborhoods and my family. My brother, like I said, he sold drugs. Part of what he used to do that 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 kind of glorified glorified the lifestyle is he used to give me money and like a whole bunch of ones and a couple of big bills on top, and it looked like a big stack at the age of twelve. So now, of course, I'm I'm uh, attracted to this, and I wanna I wanna learn how to do this. You know what I mean? And I'm gonna tell y'all a story that really really till this day hurts me. And it almost makes me want to cry. My mom married this guy and he was on um, cocaine. He used to smoke cocaine. And sometime he used to take me home. Right. And um, he would pull over on the side of the road and he would smoke the cocaine right there in front of me and tell me not to tell my mama. So at that time, I was already running drugs for my brother. So I know exactly what's going on now. I didn't tell my mama. But what I did do is I went to my mom's house the next time and I went through her her drawers and stuff and I found a pipe. So now the the rumors and the the vision that I have of my mama intoxicated and stuff, I get to see this stuff. But now it's verified and it's like uh, took my breath. You know, I hate the guy. He's the cause of everything and all this other stuff. And all in all. He was just uh, another vessel. You know what I mean? That I realized that now she was going through what she was going through way before she met him. But that right there turned me um, inside out, man. And and at that point, man, my my behavior and my aggression and probably my mental health and all the depression, anxiety, you know, all that stuff came out for me in an aggressive manner. And, and I just acted out. For 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 years, man. At seventeen, I caught a, a a case, a criminal case, and went to jail. But I was uh, I ain't gonna say blessed, but I'm gonna say blessed with probation that time. But still, my mentality was still stuck in in the same in the same realm of, of criminal activity and trying to get some money and being the baddest dude I could, you know. And I want I wanted the reputation, the reputation of was the the uh the lifestyle the lifestyle that we talk about a lot of people don't understand that just not drugs and alcohol we can also be addicted to a lifestyle you know and my lifestyle at that time man it was uh the reputation was was so high that I just wanted to continue to solidify my my space in the criminal world as one of the baddest dudes that I could be you know now, now I have a question were you the baddest dude around or what Man, I had I had my moments, man. <laughs> and my moments. I, I'm gonna tell you this: I didn't allow disrespect, and if there were di- there was disrespect, I handled it according to the street codes. So, yeah. yeah. But now, uh, disrespect is is rare. But the way that I handle it now, through uh, working a program, Narcotics Anonymous, and also through my experience of of being the one, the aggressor. I, I handle it with with uh, love, care, and um, 
also I know how to step back and allow the person to to calm down first and and and, and get whatever they need to get. Yeah. And so please elaborate a little more on that. So you have this unique experience of living a lifestyle that entailed zero tolerance for, for lack of a better word, disrespect. You lived while you were incarcerated in a place where things were handled a certain way, I imagine. And now you're dealing with, in this case, teenagers who from time to time (laughs) can be somewhat disrespectful, can be a little bit entitled, can express themselves in ways that don't really sit right initially. Parents are going to deal with that. Um, We're going to be triggered in certain ways to respond, right? And so you mentioned one simple skill as being taking a step back and letting them get their stuff in order. What are some other ways that you have taken what you've lived in the past and sort of picked what's helpful from it and then applied it to what you do now and then what didn't work and applied it yeah. now? Can you just elaborate a little more on what you just mentioned? Well, I, I you know, as a recovery coach, one of the questions I ask is how did it work for you? Now, if I ask myself that um, every every behavior that I, I had back then and every consequence was because of the behavior. So evidently how I was dealing with stuff back then didn't work. So, and also going through the streets and, and the prison system, it is uh, certain levels of violence and disrespect and stuff like that, that puts you at a certain, certain mentality. And once you're outside of that, I've experienced that. So I know a threat or, or stuff like that when I see it, you know what I mean? So when I'm dealing with somebody that's, uh, and plus I'm aware of, of mental health now, uh, not just mine, other people's, you know what I mean? So once I got that knowledge and understand that, you know, hey, I know how to give people grace now and understand that maybe they going through something because I was going through something, but I didn't know what, what I was going through. You know what I mean? So now with the resources that we have and stuff, they are able to go see what's going on with them. And we also can see what's going on with them. And I can handle the situations accordingly. But one of the main things, three of the main things that I, I like to uh, incorporate in my in my um, interactions is patience, love and tolerance, man. You know, without those three right there, it's, it's hard to build a rapport and hard to uh, uh, provide a safe space and non-judgmental space within myself when I'm dealing with somebody to uh, get them to talk to me or or reach out or explain where they're at, however they need to show up. I'm going to let them be wherever they're at. And instead of be trying to play God and, and, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, your behavior is unacceptable. None of that stuff matters. What matters is getting in the solution. Let's figure out what's going on with you and let's get in the solution. And that's what a lot of kids love about our program. And I don't know if that's what they love about me, but I allow them to be where they're at, wherever they're at, whenever they're there. You know what I mean? And then, Without when when you do that, it, it tends to come back in full circle, and they come back and they they uh come back and explain where they're at and what they need. Mm-hmm. I was gonna ask, and so Jamie, as a mother, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's some some high risk behaviors that bring something out of you, but we're, there's some of the smaller things your daughter would do from time to time that would just get you in that mode, where it's like I need to step back or I need to kind of do something different. What were some of those? things she would say or do that would just really irk you? (laughs) And how would you handle it? Yeah. Yes and no. Prior to addiction being part of our family's landscape, I could get going on things that today are completely immaterial to me. Mm -hmm. When I look at before and now, 
things that really got me going are really not that big a deal. A technique that she still uses today that I try to have boundaries around, but it's difficult is one of her manipulation tactics is to share with me really bad things that are happening in her life Mm -hmm. in the hopes that the fear that that arouses in me will then cause me to maybe violate some of my boundaries or to engage in old behavior patterns that don't work. You know, you were saying earlier, and I've said this for 16 years now, you know, if I could love my daughter out of addiction, well, she never would have been in addiction. Right. She's my only child. And I, I love her with all my heart. If I could shame her out of addiction, she'd be out of addiction because that was a tool that I had in the beginning. It wasn't a good tool, but it was the only tool that I had. If I could have punished her out of addiction, I would have. I tried. You know, there's just a lot of things that it goes back to to what you said earlier, Latif, is that we feel like as parents, as a mom, that you should be able to control your child. You should mm-hmm. be able to find and offer the solution if you're a good mom. Right. And, you know, that's just a mindset that I think is is hurtful and harmful for parents who are parenting adolescents that struggle with mental and behavioral health issues. It's self-defeating and, and then there's not a lot of truth in it. And so um, I like that you said that earlier. I appreciate that you said that earlier. And I think it's important for parents to know, like your kid is going, they know your buttons. And so they're going to press those buttons if it's going to get them what they want. And, you know, it's not personal, (laughs) but it feels real personal. Whenever my daughter had stole some jewelry and then helped me look for it. Yeah. Like, oh my God, are you kidding? That's missing. Mm -hmm. And then spent hours helping me look for it, knowing damn well it was down (laughs) the street in the pawn shop, right? So, you know, those are unique things that we encounter as parents. And and I know that you've worked with. So I want to I want to ask you to elaborate on that. But I also want to ask you if you could to go back, because you said something that I thought was really interesting. You were talking about your childhood and you were talking about, you know, the difference between the two families, the mom and dad. A lot of us experienced that. I did too. Uh, My daughter experienced that. But you said something about how you didn't find mental health until you were in your 40s because that wasn't something that was allowed or believed in. Right. Can you tell us like maybe why that was something that wasn't allowed or believed in? What was the mindset? In my culture, you know, my my dad, he's in his 70s. A lot of lot of parents back then believed uh, in prayer, that you can pray everything away. My dad also gave me the options to uh, go to church and stuff like that. Of course, he didn't go. So I chose the same option he chose. And the resources were not readily available all the time. You know, I come from public school to private school when I turned 14 and, and um, everything that was instilled in me was already there, you know, and and I get into a situation. It's because I'm bad. Oh, you're a bad kid. You're going to end up in jail. You're going to end up dead. That's what I heard my, the majority of my teenage years. So, of course, once you hear those things, you start believing it. You know, that's the way I acted. 
and I acted. It was part of the reason why, not the whole reason. But I want to 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 uh, say something about the parent thing. A lot of parents feel guilty, feel shame and remorseful and all that stuff because of control. Now, let me show you how deep this goes. It goes to the point to where, okay, I have this good job. It's, uh, I'm finally making the money that I need. I'm going to go buy a house over here. My kid's going to go to this school, this elementary, going to go to this middle school, and then going to go to this high school. So you basically what I'm saying, you've planned your kid's life already. Now, once it's a kink in the armor and the kid veers to some, some totally different than what you've planned, now my my I'm defeated. You know, I'm defeated now. What did I do wrong? When all in all, I keep saying that the control is never ours. It's never ours. That's why we encourage the kids to find a higher power. We encourage the parents to find a higher power. And once you find that higher power, the serenity and the peace that goes with every decision that you make is heard and is felt through the right source. You know what I mean? It's coming through the right source. And that source is not me. If it's an individual source, then nine times out of 10, we're going to feel defeated when it don't go the way we want it to go. You know what I mean? But the way that it is, it's going to go, however it goes, we can feel at peace with it if we connected somewhere. So I wasn't connected at all. So the only thing I was connected to was the streets. The, the connection that I had was was uh, coincided with the consequences that I got. Once they get into a, uh, the kid, once I got into a, a situation where I was uh, willing to do something different and uh, find a high power and um, get connected that way. And also with the mental health, you know, mental health and addiction go together. Not that everybody that's that's in addiction has mental health and not that everybody that has mental health is in addiction. But both are possibilities if you have one, you know, and and what what we try to do is uh, at least get an assessment, at least get. And that only that don't, don't only go for the kid, you know. We have generational things that 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 we go, we deal with, and I want to give y'all this too. Let's say my grandpa was a a, a a alcoholic, right? And I didn't tell this story. My grandma killed my grandpa because he used to beat on her as an alcoholic, and he tried to come in the window, and she shot him to death. So those things right there go unaddressed throughout the generations, right? So here I have the. Uh, this these situations, these mental health situations, these the addictions and all this stuff right here, they go unaddressed. Um, they have an impact on the next generation. They do. So I have years and years worth of unaddressed mental health issues. I'm the first person in my family that addressed mental health. You know, the, the families that, hey, we're not going to talk about that. That was my family right there. And the, the main thing that was getting asked of me back then is, boy, what's wrong with you? <laughs> boy, what's wrong with you? So you could ask me that question without any professional uh, opinions or none of that. Personal person. How can I answer that? I can't. I can't. That's why it's very important to find the resources and even take, you know, just take the next step. Change something in in the in the uh, demographics of, of everything that's going on. Like, you know, they got therapy, they got counseling, they got Archway, Padap, whatever it is that you you feel like, just try something. Go listen and see what other people have to say because there's something there for, for everybody. So I don't know if I answered your question, but hey, you did, you did. Okay. Thank you. So when it comes to incarceration, it is common knowledge that mental health challenges aren't adequately met during that time, and 
On the flip side of that, though, I have heard from families or parents in particular talk about how when they had a young person who wasn't medication compliant and wouldn't be in the same, you wouldn't know where you didn't know where they were going to be each night out and about, they would actually look forward to them being incarcerated in the short term because it provided stability, structure, and potentially some medication compliance. But again, on the other side of that, we know that needs aren't being met, things are challenging. So if you wanted to touch on the way that it sucks being incarcerated and the impact it has on mental health, please do. But in what ways did you maintain? In what ways did you not kind of really start to struggle? Or I don't know, in what ways did you stay sane? Did you maintain uh, while you were incarcerated? It's interesting that you say that because, you know, everybody has their, their normal, right? So here I am incarcerated, gang related and all that stuff. And um, this, the behavior that my first 10 years, I was, I was, uh, I guess you can call me a rascal. You know, I used to fight. I used to get into it with the, the, the officers, had a lot of interracial battles and riots and fights and stuff. But at that time, that was my normal. So I was living in my mental health at the time, you know what I mean? Without even knowing that I was. Now, you have down there, you have a, a vast majority of the, the uh, inmates that try to uh, manipulate the mental health system by getting on some kind of medication so that they don't have to work. So you have people that actually end up really needing it when they didn't need it at first. But the people that do need it, don't even know that they need it. Like I, I needed something to calm me down. I needed something to keep me focused. So that something didn't come in a, in a medication form. The form that it came in was my daughter coming to see me and not talking to me. So I ended up in um, a cage, shackled down and everything. And my daughter came to see me and she wouldn't talk to me. So, and this is probably the first time I had seen her in a couple of years. You remember I told y'all I practiced the acceptance already by being in prison. So I go through my mental process and process my emotions and try to figure out what's going on. But by that time I finished processing, like three or four days later, I get a letter from my daughter. And she told me the reason why she couldn't talk to me is because I was in their cage and she would start crying. So that was probably with 10, 11 years in. After that, I may have gotten in trouble maybe one or two times. And, and I, I made a conscious decision to, to get in college to uh, and get go, come home. I made a conscious decision. But it wasn't the medication the, because down there, reasons for giving medication and the, the care and the love and all that stuff is non-existent. You know, they they it's like a legalized drug dealing down there. What do you need? And that's it. So I, I chose not to participate in that. But I did. I did get drunk and high off of other people's medications every now and then. So, like I said, the normal it's a normal way. When you're doing wrong stuff, if you're in that environment, that's normal to you at that time, right? So I had to learn otherwise by by applying um, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding and getting around people, places, and things that can help me change, you know? Disordered substance use didn't become a part of your story until after yeah. you were in prison. That came much later. Tell us how that began when your use of substances really started to get out of hand and when you started to realize, okay, there's something to this. Okay. That started in 2014, two years after I got out, hanging around my ex-girlfriend's cousins. They were uh, cocaine dealers and they alcoholics. So um, of course, 
I was considered like one of the life of the parties, but I just drank at the time. And I tried the substance, and um, that day I tried that substance, Andrew and Miss Jamie, was the beginning <laughs> of a total downfall. I lost my house, my family, my job. I lost everything within the first year and a half, first year and a half. So I was in addiction for four years, from age 41 to going on 45. So I went to treatment three times and I relapsed. No, I went to treatment four times and I relapsed three times. But the first three times I wasn't, uh, I was still in my antisocial isolation stage. I hadn't been diagnosed with my mental illness yet. So at 44, I got diagnosed. So I would go into treatment and the first three weeks I would isolate. And then the last week I would try to do some work. So I'm actually getting a week worth of treatment, you know, and plus the treatment centers that I went to, I was um, treated different because of my background. You know, nobody there that I went, the treatments that I went to, nobody there uh, had a background like I did as far as the extensive incarceration in the, the streets and stuff like that. So basically the staff would treat me like a celebrity, I guess you can call it. So um, I wouldn't get the treatment that I needed. And I would encourage parents and kids that to to um, assess their situation. And if they're uncomfortable in any way, as in a, you know, not as far being there, you know, you, if you need to be there, but the staff or the therapist or anybody that you're dealing with is treating you different than other people or anything else that use your voice. So I wasn't able to use my voice at that time because I was still in the mentality of I'm that guy. You know what I mean? I'm him. This is how I've been treated all my life. Nobody would go against what the teeth said. If I said something, that's what it meant. That's what goes. And that that followed me all the way through treatment at work. Even at work, I had I had behavior issues at my old jobs in the construction field. I had behavior issues. I used to jack people up and talk crazy to the bosses and all that stuff. So my mental health followed me all the way through until till I turned 44 years old. My last treatment center, I went to the right step and um, I did residential and PHP. And I want to share this too. The treatment process is set up for at levels for a reason. You know what I mean? A lot of people go to treatment and do the 30 days and that's it. Now, if I've been using, I use for four years. Do you, do I actually think 30 days are going to erase, hmm. you know, four years worth of using? No, I need more treatment than that. And the treatment, I need treatment after treatment, PHP, IOP, residential PHP, IOP. It's set up like that for a reason. And a lot of people get discouraged because of the finances, the financial obligations. Now, they, there are resources out there to help you with those financial obligations. So the initial response that I get a lot of times is, oh, I can't afford that. Well, it's either figure out, find the resources that you need. And I sometimes I have to tell parents, either you're going to afford the treatment or you're going to have to afford the funeral, one or the other, sooner or later. You know what I mean? It's just straight up. So a lot of parents end up, end up, searching and doing more homework than they than they, they would normally do to save their child. That's how you love on your child right there. You love on your child by figuring out what you can do with the resources that's available to put your kid in a better situation to, to have a better way of life. And that's what my dad did for me. I think something that you said, Latif, is really important information for both parents and professionals. And that is 
you know, I've shared numerous times that my, my daughter's substance use is running into her 16th year. And so there's been a lot of treatment centers. There's been a lot of sober living. There's been a lot of different levels of care, but I, I know in the beginning, the, the panic and the sheer terror and the, just everything that is running through a parent's mind, desperately wanting to get help for your child, but not knowing, you know, we're not mental. Most of us are not mental health experts. And we've even had people on who were and said, I was a mental health expert until it came to my child. Right. Right. And then, you know, all the learning and the letters after your name go away. But I think something that, that happens that I think PADAP and going back to what you were saying earlier, I, I think, you know, it's one of the things that we strive to do here at Archway, and that is to educate parents because in the beginning, it didn't matter what treatment center, just a treatment center that had some good reviews online. And then that's where she was going. And then, you know, it kind of starts this chain of where parents become so dependent on the industry to provide for their child or their loved one. And and we don't get educated, right? right? We just, and it's important, like you said, to depend on professionals, but it's also important for us to know and get educated ourselves so we know what professionals we can depend on and which ones mm, probably not. Maybe I need to find another route. You mentioned that earlier too. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Mm-hmm. And you know, my mindset after the very first treatment center, when my daughter came back and relapsed within days, I've said this before, I was furious. Like I, if I put my car in the garage and they send it back to me and it's still not functioning, I'm going back and saying, I'm not paying you a dime. You need to fix my car. She gave it back to me broken. Yeah. Right. And, and I think at least for me, I didn't understand addiction. I had not been exposed to it. I had not been a child of, I had not married it. I I only give birth to it yeah. evidently, but I just didn't have a relationship with it. And so if I sent her away to be fixed and she comes back still broken, mm-hmm. then the institution had a problem. Yeah. And that's just a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of yeah. the the mental health, behavioral health that goes with substance use. So can you maybe kind of address some of those things? Because I think they're important for parents. Miss Jamie, for um, one thing I want parents to understand is uh, our kids are not bad kids trying to be good. Right. They're sick kids trying to get well. Right. So, you know, the behavior stuff like that, they come with addiction. Now, if I got somebody sick trying to get well, uh, most of the time when somebody's sick, we give them everything that they need. If they take Tylenol and the headache ain't on, it ain't the headache ain't going away. You try something else. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, whatever it is, cancer, they got extended therapy for that stuff. And we're willing to do those things. You know, we're willing to come out of the pocket or whatever it is, whatever it takes to do those kind of things. So the stigma around addiction is, is negative and, and it, it causes us to 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 uh, get upset and get frustrated and stuff like that when what we initially do doesn't work. And just like finding another medication or another doctor, we have to find other resources for our kids. You know what I'm saying? For whoever is in addiction. But uh, and I want to also say that 
there's a difference between a process group and a support group. Now, when you deal with those uh, treatment centers and stuff like that, some of those places have process groups. Now, it's kind of it's kind of hard to go inside and process as a parent when I feel like this ain't my problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's important parents to find a support group it's where you can go in there and say, I'm sick of this, you know, and 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 and, and bleed, bleed your heart out and get the support from a parent that already been through it. That's what that's what the support group is. Now, if you find a, a support group versus a, a process group, a lot of times things, the, the perspective of change on a lot of things that's going on, because now you get a better understanding through lived experience from somebody that's in the same group that you in instead of. And also the professionals always. Can I speak to the professionals right quick? Please. I know I'm not clinical or nothing, but I did go through a, a, a transformation and the transformation that I went through, I dealt with a counselor, LCDC, at my last treatment center that had this cookie-cutter treatment plan. Now, when I say cookie-cutter treatment plan, a lot of times those treatment plans have the same information. All you do is copy and paste names. Those are setting up somebody to fail. And the reason why I say that is because that would not have worked for me. Now, I had to teach this counselor how to treat me. <laughs> So professionals, please be humble and allow people to, to teach you how to treat them and not go by, OK, this is addiction. This is what happened. A, B, C, D. Let's just put this name on there. That ain't how I go. You know, I know sometimes you change a few words here and there, but I, I would I would encourage them to start from the top and work their way to the bottom with being inquisitive and, and actually talking to this person and asking them the questions on the paper instead of just filling them in based on, you know, the last person or, or something similar that this person is going through than the other person is going through. So I had to teach the counselor about me. And like I was telling y'all, they never done, they never dealt with somebody that had been incarcerated 19 years with a history of anger, violence and aggression and stuff like that. So she was uh, actually very, very uh, humble and, and she listened very well. And she allowed me to teach her how to treat me. And that was something that I never had. Because all my life, people would just do what I say. Never question, never, you know, never go against anything. But she allowed me to to uh, speak through my heart, you know, and, and be non-judgmental and take notes. And then she put together something that just fit me and not me and, and 40 other people. You know what I mean? So that's important, too, when you're dealing with, with kids or anybody in addiction, is to give them their own individual treatment plan and not a cookie cutter treatment plan. We could not agree with that more. That is one of the things that we advocate for and that we let our parents and students know up front that, yes, we are school. There are some things that are going to be the same for every student every day, but we are very big on making sure that our kids have an individual plan that really, you know, Andrew, you could speak to that better than me. Yeah, that's just something I've learned over the years working with Sasha, our executive director, and and working with our collaborators like you guys at PADAP is that there has to be an individualization of of every student, of every client, of every person we work with. Um, you, you said it best, Latif, to just kind of dive into this or get used to this cookie cutter sort of response that can be problematic. Yeah. So you said it well, you guys said it well. Yeah. I had a, a counselor give me a call and and they expected PADAP to be a, a accepting of everybody. I was telling you about that, Andrew. And um, so I'm I'm regardless of the situation we in nonprofit, whatever it is, my passion is my, 
my passion and and I'm here to help people. So the way that looks is the same kind of navigation that everybody else have to do. I have to do extra extra uh, research and stuff like that too. And I also have to know who I'm dealing with. Now, if I if I throw in some um, easy easy uh, win backs and stuff like that 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 anybody can do, then then I'm doing the, the kid and the family a disservice because I'm just putting this kid in here maybe because he on probation or maybe be, he's trying to get in good favor with his probation officer or something like that. That ain't none of my business. My business is to give this kid whatever they need. Okay, I need you to show me that you want to be here. You know what I mean? I don't want you to show me that you need to be here. I want you to show me that you want to be here. So I'm going to put some work in place for them to show me that. And and the counselor was was kind of feeling like uh we were supposed to accept every kid that come through here. And and, and I'm saying not on my watch. You know, we gonna they're gonna have to show that they they wanna be here. And 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 I'm pretty sure I swear the same way. And I would encourage a lot of professionals because everybody ain't ready, you know? Everybody ain't ready. Very true. Very true. So Latif, one of the things as a as the parent of someone who has felonies on her record, you know, especially when they're adolescents and they get felonies. But we as parents, that's hard. And we think life is over. It's ruined. How are they ever going to come back from that? Not only have you come back from that, you've come back swinging for the fences. You've made an incredible life for yourself. Can you speak to that to parents? Because that is a real fear. And, so, and you've done it. So um first of all, as, as a juvenile, depending on the, the uh severity of the crime, you have an opportunity to uh get a second chance and get your, your file sealed when you turn 18. So I caught my first felony at 17, so I was already adult. But it's not it's never over with because you know, if it was, then I wouldn't be sitting here right now as a, an adult. Caught, you know, I mean, I had violent crimes and everything. And regardless if I was guilty or not, it's still there. So somebody is looking at this paper on the other side and seeing who this person is. But I, the work that I put in to change the perspective of other people, not only other people of myself, I had to say, hey, this is not me. You know what I mean? And I had to have the support of my parents and the support of the 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 NA community, the PDAP, everybody that's in my circle right now is in my circle, feeding positivity into my life. So as a as a, a juvenile and a parent feeling like that their kids' life is over just because they caught a felony, that's not true. That's not true at all. And I'm, and I'm here to show you that right now. I'm showing you right now. But the thing is that the kid has to want to do something different. They has to want to do something different. Parents, we can't do it for them, but we can give them the resources and, and, the, and the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding, the, the conversations. I mean, open conversations. Give them a space where they can talk about whatever they want to talk about and not and not condemn them for talking about it. You know, um, I had a conversation with my wife that was very uncomfortable, you know, but I guarantee you after the conversation that we had, it was a p- specific type of growth. That came along with that. Now we know how the solution to what we was dealing with. And kids need solutions. They don't need to sit in the problem because if if the mom and the dad and the kid are sitting in the problem, then how are we gonna get a solution? We can't. So the, the it's never over with. It's never over with. And I used to work for a place called Unlimited Visions that dealt with juveniles coming out of a uh, out of the juvenile system into treatment. I can I can 
can't count on on one hand or two hands how many kids that I saw in the community coming from the 16, 15 year old to working at these uh, night stocker jobs. I've, I've ran into a whole bunch of I even get uh, uh, I went to one graduation last year. I went to a graduation for one of the kids from two and a half, three years ago. He hit me on a messenger and sent me an invite to his graduation. So that right there when it's within itself shows me that if somebody wants to change and they have the resources and the mentality to do the change, that they will do the change and they can can be successful. So it's never over with. Don't ever count yourself out. Thank you. So thank you, Latif, for being with us. Please tell us a little bit more about what you do at PADAP and what that program does in the Houston community. So Palmer Drug Abuse Program is an alternative peer group. We uh, give kids a safe space to come in and share the things that they wouldn't normally share with anybody else and get feedback from their peers that probably going through some of the same things that they're going through. And the way that I coach the kids is, of course, through motivational interviewing, but also I use humor and love, um, respect. I understand that they have their own process, regardless of what my process looks like. Whatever process that they're going through, that's the process that I support as long as it's a, it's, it's a, it's a potential positive outcome. You know, we can't predict the outcome, but we, we can, um, start the start the process, you know, help them start the process. And nine times out of 10, the process that they start is, is going to be a positive outcome at the end. So what I do is just love on the kids, man, love on the parents, anything that they need uh, as far as some some uh, resources and coaching, a, a ear, a hug, whatever it is they need. That's what the teeth give them. Man. And, and that's what the, everybody at PADAP give them. Yeah. And what's the best way for parents to learn more about y'all and, and get in touch with y'all? The best way is you can go on the Palmer Drug Abuse Program website and they have a phone number you can call. And it's a direct line to our the director. And of course, you talk to the director. And once you talk to the director, then they'll send you straight to me. Perfect. And we uh, set up an enrollment. And so we will drop that uh, link and the phone number in the show notes. And, you know, just to kind of close on a humorous note, I don't know, maybe this is funny, maybe it's not. So you're recently married and yeah. you and I were talking about your engagement and you had shared with me that y'all had met like in the 90s. And so I just assumed y'all had dated. Do you remember this? I thought y'all had dated yeah. for like 20 something years. And I was like, no, no. stuck around. No, And that's what <laughs> you said. You know, Jamie, I have been to prison. And yeah. I was so floored because audience, if you could meet and see and be in the presence of Latif, like never in a million years would I have thought that because you're just such a kind, loving, gentle soul. And when you shared with me and you called yourself a rascal, <laughs> I was like, no, there's no way. So Latif, I just want to tell you the work that you have personally done, the work that you continue to do, and the fact that you pour all that out onto families and kids. I mean, we're just so grateful. We're so grateful to get to collaborate with you and Padap and have you love on our babies that go here. Um, we're grateful for you. Thanks. Appreciate for it. I appreciate it. Thank you. 1990, I think it's 1990 when we met. Uh, and it's so crazy because me and her brother was um, caught a case together. We <laughs> caught a case together. And that's how I met her. So 
Uh, we were together for probably two years or so, a little over two years. Then I went to prison and she was always a woman of God. Her mom was, uh, was a pastor. She's a pastor now. Um, she has her own ministries and stuff like that. And, um, you know, by me not having a, a source, a higher power at that time, the connection, it wouldn't work at that time anyway. You know what I mean? Because she was in a totally different lifestyle than I was. So um, God allowed us to come back together um, last year. You know, we reached out to each other off and on since I've been home, but she was married and I was in a relationship. And, you know, that happened for a few years up until the last year. And um, we got engaged in December, I believe. We we linked back up in August, got engaged in December, and now we're married. Mm. And both of us uh, serve God and both of us have a, a plan, goals, and, and uh, we collaborate and we come together and do things together. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to have you back on the show. Um, I know y'all are collaborating on some things now. And so once those are kicked off and in place, then we'll have you back on the show and have you talk about those things. Okay. I appreciate y'all having me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Latif. Thanks for listening to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy. Enjoying this conversation? We kindly invite you to subscribe to A Way Through wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more episodes like this, visit us on archwayacademy.org backslash podcast. Are you a medical professional and would you like to join this conversation around teen health and recovery? Or are you a parent with a teen struggling with addiction? You can visit our website at archwayacademy.org to schedule a tour to visit our school. Thanks for listening to today's show. This is A Way Through.